0: I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The controversial approval of Sarepta Therapeutics at Teplerson to treat a certain form of Duchenne muscular dystrophy has been viewed as a major victory for patient advocates. Advocates aggressively lobbied the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to grant approval for the drug despite a weak data package presented by the company. Janet Woodcock, director of the FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, overrode staff to greenlight the drug. We spoke to Deborah Miller, president, CEO, and co-founder of Cure Duchenne, about the significance of the approval for organizations' venture philanthropy model and what other hope the Duchenne pipeline may hold for patients. This interview was recorded during the Global Genes Rare Patient Advocacy Summit, and there is audible activity in the background. Deborah, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, it's, thank you for having me here. We're
0: going to talk about Cure Duchenne and its Venture Philanthropy model, the, the recent approval of Therapeutics, and, and what it signals about any long-term change about how the FDA may consider patient viewpoints and weighing, whether or not to approve a drug. For listeners who may not be familiar with Duchenne Muscular Dystrophy, let's start there. What is it? How common is it? What's the prognosis for boys with the disease, and, and what treatments are available?
1: So Duchenne muscular dystrophy affects boys. Um, the prevalence is somewhere around one in thirty-five hundred boys, and they're usually diagnosed somewhere between three to five years old when they have trouble keeping up with their peers, and you know you notice um, just gross motor slowness. And uh, the prognosis for these boys, it's not good. Um, it is a hundred percent fatal disease. The prognosis usually puts them into a wheelchair by the time they're ten or twelve years old. By the time they're in their teens, they um, have trouble moving their upper body, um, limbs, and arms, and they will require ventilation. And the life expectancy is usually somewhere between, you know, let's say average uh, mid-20s, and the primary cause of death is usually cardiac failure.
0: And at this point, what treatment options have they had
1: available to them? Well, up until this week... Um, there were no approved drugs for Duchenne. And the only treatments that were available were steroids, uh, corticosteroids. And most boys that have Duchenne are on a chronic dose, a very high chronic dose of of corticosteroids on a daily basis. And then the other um, therapy that is beneficial to these boys is physical therapy and specialized physical therapy just for Duchenne.
0: So the FDA, as you mentioned, just approved Therapeutics. Templisin, an exon skipping drug that, in essence, provides a work around the faulty part of the the gene. How significant a development is this for Duchenne patients?
1: So this drug seems to slow down the progression and, in some cases, stabilize the boys. We don't know um, long term, you know, what the prognosis will be for these boys on the drug because um, they haven't been on the drug that long. Our hope is that by getting the drug to the boys earlier, we're going to see a market improvement over the current um, generation of boys that are on this drug. The reason being, uh, exon skipping is designed to work on muscle, to trick the, the gene to produce a protein dystrophin that's not currently being produced. And um, it just makes sense that if there's not very much muscle left um, because of the deterioration, that there's not a lot to work on. And therefore, we we believe that the younger the boys, uh, the better the result will be.
0: And in terms of, uh, this is for patients with a very specific mutation, the exon 51 is the the faulty part of the gene. What percentage of Duchenne patients stand to benefit from this drug?
1: So this this first exon skipping drug that was approved uh, will treat about 13% of the patients due to their particular mutation. So...
0: Patient advocates played a huge role, in, at least apparently, in getting this drug approved. What what was it like behind the scenes? How, how did they have an impact here?
1: So I think the patient involvement um, with the teplizumab goes back many, many years. And I think it's important not to forget the important role that um, patient groups play Played in funding the early research. Um, I think that um, there's a lot of attention paid to the the focus that was on the FDA, which is very, very important. But, um, you know, I, I think the most important things for patient advocates at this point to remember is we need a lot more of these drugs in the pipeline. And therefore, the the advocates do need to step up and help with the funding of of new and more innovative research. But in terms of uh, the the advocacy at the FDA, I think developing a relationship um, with the top tier um, executives at the FDA was crucially important, making sure that they actually knew the boys, saw the boys, heard what was going on, and um, had a good sense of the natural history of this disease. Did did
0: the company do anything differently than other companies? is there anything unusual in the approach advocates took?
1: So in, in terms of Duchenne, we've never had um, such vocal advocates um, at, the, at the FDA. Um, so this was the first company, I think, that had this level of um, dedication from, from the advocates.
0: So th- this was an approval that had a lot of controversy within the FDA. Yes. Janet Woodcock overrode staff and going with the approval. Do you think that has any lasting effect, good or bad?
1: So this, this is a whole new world we're in now, really. Um, it will be very interesting. And trust me, all the companies are watching this. And I would imagine that strategies are being revised this week because of this. Because if truly this signals the FDA being willing to take small uh, sample size in terms of patient um, trial, trial size patients and um, being quite flexible in terms of what a surrogate endpoint needs to, to prove, then I think that um, this does open the door for a lot of other companies to hopefully be approved very quickly.
0: Cure Duchenne's name speaks to its ambition. As you mentioned before, this is not a cure. But how far does this get you, and, and what does the pipeline look like for other potential drugs that may give promise?
1: That's a really good question. So, you know, we've been uh, proponents and supporters of Exxon skipping from, gosh, back 2003, 2004, we funded, uh, we funded PTC, well, PTC, which is a different mutation that's being addressed by. Um, uh through therapy we funded that in 2003 we funded Procenza, which was acquired by biomarin in 2004 and then we funded serepta in 2010 so we've been you know big proponents of mutation specific therapies knowing that of course they're not cures but what we want to do is you know we'll take anything we can get as parents And the goal here is to slow down the disease, to buy time so that when the true cure comes about, um, these boys will still be with us to be able to take advantage of that, knowing full well that it's not going to happen tomorrow. And so our strategy has been to basically circle the wagons around this disease and understand all the different um, side effects components and the pathology of this disease. So we um, take a very holistic approach um, in addition to the stop codon read-through with PTC um, and, and the exon skipping with, with Biomarin and serepta we have funded um, a small company called MyoTherix, which um, addresses the inflammation that happens when muscle cells die and that, that inflammation um, creates a bad environment where muscle regeneration cannot happen. And so we're hopeful that myotherics will be able to address that. Um, a result of the inflammation is fibrosis. So the inflammation ends up remodeling the muscle and turning it into fibrotic muscle tissue that cannot be treated by any drug. And so we funded another small company out of USC called uh, Reser X, which is addressing the fib- fibrosis of the muscle. Understanding also that, uh, as I mentioned before, cardiac failure is the primary cause of death. We funded a small company in Los Angeles called Capricor Therapeutics, which has um, um, a cardio-derived stem cell um, product that they're delivering through catheters, right, directly into the heart. They started off with adult heart attack victims, and have had good results. You know, at least you know, in, in mice studies and in early human studies, and so they're translating that into Shin boys, and they finished enrolling their study. And they will have some some readout probably in the first half of 2017. So you know, as we you know as we move towards the cure, which could be a gene therapy, for example, um, and so we did fund a company called Bamboo Therapeutics, which was um, located in North Carolina. We funded that in January, and they just got purchased and acquired by. Um, Pfizer in August and so that was a pretty quick turnaround and we're hopeful that we're obviously we're always thrilled when a big company comes in and validates our analysis Um, because you know we took a chance on 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 bamboo and we're thrilled to see that Pfizer felt the same way about the science that we did and we're very hopeful that with Pfizer's resources they'll be able to fast track this into human clinical trials in 2017.
0: Given the circumstances under which it was approved in the U.S., is there any read on how European regulators may look at this given that the largest percentage of Duchenne patients are in Europe?
1: Yes. I would think that the, the European regulators will, will definitely take notice of this, and I think it can can only help um, serbaptist cause there. Again, there's there's no approved drug in Europe for Duchenne either. And so, um, you know, the, the European regulators tend, regulators tend to be, you know, pretty much in sync with the U.S. regulators, Um, so I I would feel that their chances are pretty good.
0: Expectation is the drug will be priced at around $300,000 a year per patient, not out of whack with what we've seen in in the rare disease space, but given the questions around how efficacious the drug it is, will benefit, do you see payers pushing back in any way?
1: So, you know, I'm not an expert on that, and I'm watching just as everybody else is. The drug actually could be higher based upon body weight. So, you know, my, my parent hat, um, when I'm wearing that, says there's absolutely no way an insurance company could refuse a drug to a kid with a terminal illness when there's no other solution. But, you know, I, I'm not the expert on that, and, and we're all watching to see,
0: so you actually helped fund uh, the, the development of this truck, but the irony is, while you use a venture philanthropy model, this was one example where you didn't apply that model, the place where you had great success was actually an investment you made in Procenta and you cashed out when it was acquired by Biomarin. Is this somehow validating the, the venture philanthropy approach for you?
1: I think it absolutely validates this approach and it it kinda mirrors biotech, you know, companies that are, you know, developing new drugs. They they have one success story for, for many, many failures. And so we know not every single company or drug that we invest in is going to be successful. I mean, so far, you know, we've, we've had a pretty good track record, um, but, but you know, you still have to do it. And, and our primary focus is the science. Our primary focus is is getting the drug into kids. And so even though, um, you know, Surrepta was one of the few um, companies we contributed to that we didn't make a, an equity investment in, which, you know too bad, but um, we're just thrilled. And, and um, put it this way, I'd rather have the, the treatment approved than to have the, the revenue from so it. So
0: what, what's the case to make, you talk about the need for people to fund this research. What's the case to make for the venture philanthropy model as opposed to just more traditional grant making?
1: So I think the venture philanthropy model is really important for nonprofits to adopt. If you're going to be writing a check um, and it's going to end up in a company that stands to make millions or billions off of a drug, then to me it's a crime to not have some of that money come back to the nonprofit to reinvest in additional research. So we took the money from, that we got from the, the uh, BioMarin purchase, and we funded five new research projects out of that.
0: At the same time, do you think that makes you more disciplined in your decision-making?
1: So we are extremely disciplined in our decision making for the science. Um, I, I don't know that, that the investment makes a difference in that. We just have a couple really really smart people working on this. We have, you know, Mike Kelly who's got thirty years drug development experience and a, a, just an incredibly scientific. Um, Success story and his background, and then Jack Knowles is an MD, and you know worked for a venture capital firm, and it was his job to analyze these these projects for VCs who really you know like to make wise decisions. So I think I think we just have a really good team, and um, and we know how to write agreements so that we can accelerate the, the research as fast as possible.
0: So looking ahead, you talked a little about the pipeline, but do you, do you see this basic approach of to sense technology, Exxon skipping, being adopted more broadly, or do you think there are other modalities that are going to become of greater interest to drive the space?
1: So I think that we probably come as far as we will with this first generation of Exxon skipping. There's other companies that um, have some really interesting technology like Wave in um, and, and Cambridge and they have um, what looks like, you know, exon skipping on steroids, um, and um, they will be going into trial very soon. So we're we're anxiously watching um, their results. And then, obviously, we're anxious to see with, with bamboo therapeutics and the gene therapy, um, the dogs are doing really, really well that you know have had this therapy, and if it works half as well in humans as it has in the dogs, we'll be ecstatic. Um, and then, obviously, we're, we're looking very closely into CRISPR therapeutics um, as it applies for Duchenne, which is a tough target for CRISPR.
0: Deborah Miller, President and CEO of Cure Duchenne. Deborah, thanks as always.
1: Thank you very much.